I put the I put the case to them. I said, we're not going anywhere. So I'm going to give you what I refer to as the grandfather test. And that is you're sitting down 30 years time on Anzac Day with a beer in your hand and your grandson on your chest, sorry, on your knee, and you're wearing your medals. And he points to your Iraq campaign medal. Are you, and he asks, granddad, what'd you get that one for? What does that mean? Are you ashamed or are you proud of what you say? And so we refocused in, in, in a situation we found ourselves because of choice, we realized more consciously where we were at and we reframed the why and therefore our corresponding actions. And by the end of that tour, 95% of people pass the grandfather test. Welcome back to the Map and the Territory podcast. This episode is brought to you by Leaders for Good. Leaders for Good is focused on helping organizations that want to do more good in the world bridge the purpose gap. Most organizations have an idea of what they'd like to do in the world. They'd like to run a business that's good for people and planet as well as profit. But embedding that purpose into all aspects of operations takes deliberate strategy and takes a new generation of leaders and that's what leaders for good delivers so if that sounds like something your organization needs you can find out more at leadersforgood.org now this conversation today is with james greenshield james is the co-founder um, along with his wife kirsty of the resilient leaders foundation in this episode, we get into a lot of detail on James's journey from really his retirement from military service after coming back from Iraq as a commander of over 100 troops, um, and his armored vehicle was hit by a roadside bomb, and that left James not just with physical wounds, but also the um, unseen uh, wounds of, of PTSD. And James's path to healing and really stepping into and, 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 and becoming himself, if I'm, if I'm uh, describing that correctly, uh, led him to the discovery of a, a new way of, of, of imparting that wisdom and, and that developmental journey on, on other emerging leaders as well. Um, he talks about it in the, in the context of harmonic leadership. This is a truly wide-ranging conversation. We go in a lot of directions. We go down a lot of rabbit holes, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. So without any more preamble, I bring you James Greenshields. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Phil. Thanks for having me. Um, James, uh, starting the starting the podcast as I as I want to do in my my usual way. Um, in your own words, how would you describe the work you do? My daughter came home one day and uh, said I was trying to explain what you did to a friend, and I think I confused him more than anything. And I said, "Well, that's quite funny because you've seen it firsthand." And she says, "Yeah, I know, but like, what is it you actually do?" And I sat there and I thought, hmm, it's a really interesting question, what I actually do. Because in essence, I do nothing except sit there and ask questions um, and set up and hold space for people to, I suppose, go through the journey they need to go through, go through the understandings of themselves or the healing or whatever. Mm. But then it came to me, I said, just, to, just for giggles, I said, I give intellectual approval for people to be spiritual. 
and uh, <laughs> it just dropped into my head. And, and I thought, well, you know, it, there's one of my biggest realizations of my own journey was uh, that I'm a, in my own belief system that I'm a spirit having a human experience, not mm. the other way around. Mm. Because you know, I grew up in a Christian um, with a Christian background. Dad was a he was a, an Anglican priest, which is why I was allowed to come on the scene. He used to bag the crap out of his Roman Catholic mates, saying I, I sleep with my organist. Luckily for me, that organist was my mother. Um, but but <laughs> mum, she uh, she taught for thirty six years in a Roman Catholic school in central Victorian country town. Uh, Dad was uh, also a chaplain to the Army, Police, Country, Forest Authority, but also a farmer. He never left the land. Even on his dying day, the last thing that he saw before he passed from the outside world was the hills he jackarooed on at the age of 15. Hmm. So it was like the cycle of life really, really beautifully coming around. But, um, you know, so I, I had quite a lot of, uh, quite a lot of religious, uh, religious experience but then one day when we we're feeding out cattle, uh, he turned to me and he said, there's my God. And he pointed to this bush block. Oh, well, it was about 2,000 acres we, I grew up on. When I say bush block, it was a back, um, back part of the property that was full of bush. And as a young kid, I was actually really intimidated by it. It had this feeling with me. I'd found Aboriginal artefacts and lots of different things. And mm. my journey now has led me to understand why I was like that. But... I didn't have the spiritual maturity or the emotional literacy to understand what he was actually saying. And then he, I just shut up though. And he looked down at me and he said, but you got to go and find your own. Hmm. And dad never forced his, his religion onto me. It wasn't until when I only took my own life, I was almost took my own life um, back in 2010 when I was sitting on the couch, just going, I've got to leave the planet. I'm, I'm just, creating too much pain for all those I really love. Everything I do stuffs up. Um, I've got to go. Mm. That that whole situation dropped into my head, coupled with a, a statement from Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning where he says, suffering ceases to be suffering when meaning is found. Mm. And it was like I tried in a young teenager in boarding school. I went to a, a, a Christian boarding school Um and, you know, I even got involved in the, is it the sequitennial, the 150th anniversary of the chapel? Um, you know, I was, I was heavily involved in that. And that was, a, that was a pursuit and a search, a frantic search to find not only meaning, but who am I? That answer to that magnificent question. And I just kept coming up vacant um, to the point where, you know, you know, some almost 20 years later, I'd lost myself to the point of, of needing to leave the planet. Um, so... What I realized in my journey home, and that's what I call my recovery from post-traumatic stress and depression, um, my journey home, it was that when, when we talk religion or spirituality, whatever lexicon you want to use, there's so much of it that's just left. It's you know, 10.30 on a, a Sunday morning when you step out of the church, you say goodbye to the priest and you just go about your daily business. So it was that one hour during the week that, I call myself religious, but what's the practical application of life? And then as soon as I spun it going, I'm not a human being having a spiritual experience. I'm a being in a human form having uh, as, a, as a spirit. Mm. And that completely turned up on its head. What I do, how I approach life, my interactions with my, my wife, I don't call a wife anymore. I realistically call her a spiritual growth partner. Mm. Um, 
and my children who, you know, have come into the world to teach me so many lessons, even though I'm meant to be the one who's homeschooling them. <laughs> it's just um, everything's been turned on its head from a societal construct, which I, I interpreted as a young person, but in the interpretation became exceedingly confused and, and in that place also hollow, long-winded answer to your question. That was a beautiful answer to the question, and there's there's quite a lot of jumping off point. <laughs> there's, there's there's so many things that I'm curious about there. Um, the 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 hollowness you shared, the, the the coming up empty when you asked the question of of who I am, and 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 the reframe around your uh you know you're a spirit or your your spirit having a human experience. I think I'm I think I'm articul- re-articulating that correctly. Um, <laughs> Is that is that the is that the sense when you ask that question of yourself now? What what's the what's the answer when you is that is that the answer or is it something uh, something layered on that? It's you know, it's deeper than that, and it changes every single time I ask myself the question to answer it. Mm. So, and it's it's an answer which only I can give. It's one of those. It's like if you've ever been in meditation uh, and you're deep in your right brain and you go into the subconscious mind and visions come and, and this, this feeling of understanding occurs and then someone asks you what your experience is like and there's this real joltedness about that question because I'm being asked to go from deep in my right hemisphere to into my left hemisphere where language exists and then try and frame it in a way which possibly might have some form of meaning, yet the meaning itself is beyond words for me. Mm. Um, that's that in essence is 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 where the deepest answer to that question comes from because it the answer is not external most people and i love doing this in workshops i pick like three people at the front row and i walk up to the first one and i say mate what do you do for a living and then he'll say uh, plumber and i go to the next person and i say what do you do for coin and then he'll say engineer and i say what do you do and to the next person, and he'll say, I'm a doctor. And I'll go to the next person, who are you? And he'll say, I'm a teacher. Are you? Now, I've, what I've done is just simply subtly change the question, leading to the end point where I've actually asked, who are you? And what we've done is we associate mm. what we do in the world as who we are, mm. which, you know, one of the things that I help people with is, uh, is I call migration through life as opposed to transition. When I left the military, I hit this void now, professional athletes, and we run um, programs for AFL people to transition out of, mm. um, we're actually just launching it this uh, this month to transition out of that. But I've already done work with the NRL transitioning out of of, so, um, of that code, et cetera. And each time I've worked with professional athletes, military people, teachers, doctors, any culture which their identity is attached to the culture, mm. they have this void afterwards because they can't set their own direction, decision-making slows down, all this stuff. Um, so that the, the whole point about that, if you go even deeper than that simple psychological aspect to it, the, the spiritual aspect to it is so my identity is connected to what I'm doing and then my worth is what I do, which is this whole relationship by I must I must do something to be of value to get back. Now, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm a massive one of, of servitude, of being of service, not in service, but being of service. I was in service within the military for 17 years and, <laughs> and I realized the, the massive difference between being in service, which can at times build resentment um, and frustration and irritation. Whereas if I'm of service, I hit, and the, the, um, the mental image I always go to in my mind of being of service is Mother Teresa. 
like just that incredible saintly icon of uh, a person who just knew in her heart of hearts what had to happen mm. and then took action in alignment with that and expected nothing in return but knew completely that she would be completely supported and things would flow in return for her to then be of service again. Um, and what I find in society at the moment and with people that I work with constantly is this they're in this this place of doing this is is fixated on I must do something I must get out there and do something to bring in money which goes goes to the provider mentality the provider complex or, or archetype mm. um, which so often restricts them and if, especially men if men think they feel their wings are clipped they'll immediately go resentful and anger resentment and anger on the same scale but um, that will build because they feel the freedom being encroached. And so, you know, things lash out and imbalance comes because of that, Be simply because we attach our identity to our doingness, not our beingness. I, I love it. The The thing that came up for me listening there was the, I do a lot of work with the Enneagram. I'm not sure if you're familiar with yep. that. It's a developmental, for the listener, it's a developmental typology um, uh, framework, I guess. And the... Um, the uh, I guess the core frame there that makes it different from things like Myers Briggs or DISC or, or anything else that that people might have used is that um, you you have a type but you are not a type um, and the having a type is 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 a forgetting of core essence so all of the types are, are sort of centered around this. Um, underlying theme that love is localized and it's a forgetting that. And that that's the that's the the kind of the, the fallacy of what well, one type in particular but it runs through runs through all that love is localized and love is something that needs to be um, achieved and not a uh, fundamental binding agent of the universe which um, you know is 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 you know it's a it's a it's an attractor of, of cells and molecules and atoms and, and and entities and organisms and holes within holes and all the rest of it um, and and really what that speaks to and what that manifests as in behavior is is a um is is that doing it's i must be a certain way i must do a certain thing in order to um bring in from out there something which i feel is missing in here and that will that will solve that and you know in childhood that that kind of starts as as certain behaviors in order to uh in order to get that love and that, that affection that, that kind of core need from from our caregivers but in adulthood it, it sort of manifests in as you say things like provider provider behavior and, and all manner of other things we uh, sort of see as as the um you know a uh, manifestation of the eye of the and uh, i think you know uh, i think you alluded to this it starts with the i am xxxxx and whatever <laughs> whatever you want to put out of that after that to sort of uh, as a as a definer of who you are um you mentioned a few names there oh sorry you mentioned a few roles that people ascribe to themselves you know teachers doctors lawyers plumbers whatever it might be um who are the core people who you work with um so you you've kind of alluded to a few things about your uh, you know uh, i think in the way you framed it up your approach but who who's attracted to your your work and, and who or who who seeks you out what's the what's the sort of connection there the person that seeks me out is the person the next person that's ready to help me grow mm. is the simple answer to mm. that question is a actually just finished up with a session for a, a young lady who's an amazing woman um 
And I was a bit nervous when she asked to come on the master's program. We run a, a 12 month uh, master's in harmonic leadership program. I was a bit nervous and I turned to my wife and because it was a, as a joint interview, Kirsty and I um, run the whole thing together. And, and uh, I said, uh, what do you think about it coming on board? And Kirsty just looked at me because she can pick me a mile away. She goes, why? And I said, oh, I think she should work with you. And, I, and Kirsty just looked at me. And I didn't even full stop that. That was a projection. And, uh, <laughs> and she just held space and I said, okay, I'm a bit nervous. And she's going, why are you nervous? I said, she's going to ask me to step up. Like mm. she's going to ask me to really step up as a person who's holding space for her because she's one powerful young lady. Mm. And uh, she just, she has, she's done nothing else but that. And actually her whole group, her whole cohort, we, we have two intakes, one at the start of the year, one at the uh, middle of the year. Her whole, um, it, was, it was two or three people in that group that just, when I looked at, I've gone, okay, um, you know, I've been, I've been called now to really step up as an, as a, as a facilitator of, you know, it's a, it's cliche and I don't facilitator of harmonic change. Um, the, and I, I don't like cliches, but at the same time, I don't need to actually, the same time I don't, I can say something without it being cliche because of where it comes from. Hmm. So um, the, those that, that come um, so often have, experience stuff in their life that they're confused by like a doctrine which has been given to them had a lot of christians come my way lately had a lot of freemasons come my way um and they've been asked to go deeper i don't really read personal development books anymore like i used to because i had this i, I used to search i was frantic i was searching for the answer just give me the answer mm. and now through my healing journey i've realized that that was just the shadow of of one of my principles in life, which is wonder and or two of my principles, wonder and truth, big T truth, not little T truth. Hmm. And so universal truth. So, but in a shadow aspect of playing out in my life, that meant that I always believed someone else had the answer, not me. And I had to have the answer. Why? Because the old adage, the old maxim is knowledge is power. Hmm. But the other maxim, which runs along with that is absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So I feared knowledge at the same time. But at the same time, I had to have it. So I've got this paradox happening, this tension within. And the first break in that schism for me was that I realized I don't want to search anymore because if I run into the room searching for my keys, I've got bugger all chance of finding them. But an explorer, when they enter a, a new place, will go in with wonder and, and poise and balance. Mm. And they're far more likely to actually look at the nuances and develop a deeper understanding of what's actually going on in front of them or find your keys. Uh, and that really, really sat with me. So I said, okay, take the pedal off the metal, just slow down with this need, let, let go of the need, as the Buddhists would say, let go of the craving or the attachment um, to the thing. So detach myself from it. So and go to its purest essence. And what is it? I have a, a deep desire to connect to big T truth. And in, in that display, love the mystery of the world. And, and every sage that I've ever read has or heard say, say something of, of real value also says, the more I've learned, the less I know. Hmm. And I think that touches on the mystery of the, of the world, of the universe, of everything, of life. Um, so I, I do have this deep underlying 
desire for knowledge and through that into the power sense of what knowledge is. But I've been really drawn back to the ancient mysteries um, and, you know, lots of, of different ancient texts, which I think even though cloaked in a, in a form of code, when I sit or when I'm tutored into understanding the code, um, I can actually see and really feel something deep to what the, the vibration of those texts just holds a lot. Like a, a great mate of mine said to me one day, he said, have you looked at your bookshelf? And I, I, I like my bookshelf. And he said, I, he, he was then talking himself. He said, I'll keep mine very clean. And I said, you dust it. And he said, no, I'm very aware of what books I have on my bookshelf because of the vibration that the books have. And I've always known that books hold vibration because of the knowledge that is within. But it, it then really twigged me. I've got to go and I cleansed my bookshelf, my primary bookshelf. I cleansed of stuff that people had given me, new age type of things, which, you know, had half truths to it. Um, you know, lots of different things like that. I just really, really cleansed it. Lots of beautiful people trying to speak a lot of stuff, but at the same time, often speaking from a wounded healer perspective and, and, and I realized it was time for me to really get clean and, and dive deep into an understanding of the deeper essence of life, which will, you know, take me, as, as M. Scott Peck says, down the road less traveled. But in my humble opinion, it's the pure form. So coming back to your question, you know, who's attracted to me at the moment? It's these, these people that really want to go out into the world and, and shift and morph the world, not judge the world, but help the world come into this harmonic place where we let go of sustainability, which is, in my humble opinion, um, born from a, a scarcity mentality. Because if I have to sustain something, I'm still in a survival mindset. But if I come into harmony with the world, then I know everything's going to thrive. It's like solar power. Great example, everyone's saying it's the solution. It's not the solution at all. Matter of fact, we're creating an incredible um, environmental issue just go to the go to the major website of, of um, solar in australia and you'll find out all the details about the issues with the panels themselves they can't be going go to greenfield site um, they're less than 50 much less than 50 percent effective on the um, the transference of energy this is this is not bad at all i'm not judging it as bad because there is no good or bad it's, there's a young teenager with an incredible solution for this issue just around the corner that will bring it forth fairly soon when when the time is right for the world to have it. But at the same time, there's something deeper um, and in a harmonic way, that, like when we understand and embrace the true nature of, of energy, things naturally take their course. It's not this capitalist consumerism, reductionist, materialistic um, worldview that we currently have based on separation if we come back into wholeness then we look at the ecosystem and know that i'm part of the system when i was out bush the other day i went on my own i went on a, a food fast took myself off food for seven days and and found a, a, a beautiful little isolated place in the bush for seven days mm. and i i sat there and it was on the morning of the morning like about 3 a.m in the morning um or the third morning i woke up and i realized something dawned on me and i went the only difference between me and everything around me is I'm the only person who thinks I'm separate. Mm. And I just had this incredible, like, 
realization. It, but it was a whole one of those whole body realizations. It wasn't intellectual realization. It was it was a multi layered. And then I, and that started this cascading of journaling, which I've turned into an exercise that our master's program just did last week, where we go out into the bush and I say to myself, I um, I do not see trees, I see. Mm. And I, have you know much about the Course of Miracles? Have you ever done the Course of Miracles? No. It's interesting. It's basically, it's a three hundred and sixty-five day course. Um, mm. I won't get too much into what the Course of Miracles is, but it's a very high vibrating document. And the first lesson basically stops you or asks you to stop labeling anything. Just let go of everything. That's not a tree. Mm. And I'd done it like five years ago. Um, But I'd I'd forgotten an element of it. And then when I had this realization out bush and I put myself in this position where I said, I don't see trees, what do I see? And then all of a sudden, just everything started to come to me to a, a deeper level that I couldn't have got when I did the course itself. Um, and it was a beautiful experience. So then I went into town and I said, I don't see people. What do I say? And that was an even funnier experience because, and the, the group that actually just did it, so many were loved nature and were repelled, repulsed by town. Mm. Mm. And to have them go through that whole experience that, that to try to, to see within themselves the two are the same, but I'm, I'm pushing against one and craving the other and then um, bring them back into a unifying aspect was really, really pretty cool. Mm. I remember having a, uh, a conversation just on that last point um, with uh, John Kugel, our, uh, our kind of mutual mutual friend and acquaintance. Good old John. Uh, yeah, about, about, about that very thing. And um, we were discussing the... the um, the agendalessness of nature or, or, or I suppose the natural agenda of nature or the natural kind of unfolding of, of, of kind of what is as opposed to the, um, the very agenda heavy, uh, urban environment in things in the urban environment are constantly trying to attract your attention for one thing or one reason or another. It's look at me buy this stop, go <laughs> walk, don't walk. Um, and I suspect that's, I suspect that's the, that, that sort of cognitive fatigue from being in that environment and, and constantly, uh, I guess it causes that, um, you know, that, that sort of central nervous system reaction where you just, your defenses go up because mm. things, the environment wants something from me, whereas nature, um, wants nothing other than to <laughs> other than to just carry on as it uh, as it is um but uh, uh, just to unpack and correct me if i'm sort of misinterpreting here what, what you're saying is look through this look through this le- lens of of just looking um that's a step back from that again because all of all of what i've just said is a um is a is a is a is a is a construct on top of on top of reality and really there just is it, and it doesn't mm. matter if the isness is uh, is the bush or uh, central Sydney. Uh, exactly. I, mean, I once heard uh, Eckhart Tolle say that he put himself in meditation in New York City, and that intrigued mm. the hell out of me. Mm. And back then, um, we'd just moved. I just got out of the military, and um, since then, we've never lived uh, like a, any permanent residence has, uh, has always been our bush. We've never lived in the city, but mm. spent quite a lot of time there. So. I started doing like uh, um, exercises with myself, 
and I'd go into, say, the Queen Street Mall in Brisbane and I'd sit down one end and put myself into meditation and then I'd just do a walking meditation up the mall mm. and feel every person that passed me. 95% of people were harbouring anger. Mm. Um, really, it just started to really see the, all the lockjaw mm. or the, the expression on their face and, funnily enough, the correlation between black or dark grey suits was quite quite striking. Um and it was just it was just really interesting. And I, I thought to myself, okay, so therefore what I'm doing now is I'm engaging my environment on my terms with balance. That's what I want to do with my life. Mm. I want to be able to, instead of being buffered or engaged by my life, I want to, you know, William Henley in Victor's poem, an incredible poem, and so many people remember the last couple of lines, Master of My Fate, Captain of My Soul, but they forget the rest of the poem, which is a journey to that point. Um, you know, and if you talk resilience, it's a, it's a beautiful poem on resilience. But at the same time, it, there's a lot of work that I've had to do to get to a point where I can now engage my environment and not be engaged by it. And, and do I find myself being engaged by it sometimes? Yeah, I still do. And But my ability to... Firstly, become very conscious of uh, when that's happening has increased dramatically. And then secondly, I have a whole suite of tools that, that can, if I choose, bring myself back to centre pretty quick so that I, I don't get out of integrity in the way that I converse. Um, a great example is I don't mind pausing, hmm. whereas before <laughs> I had to speak or I had to act and I, there was no gap between the two. You know, there was impulse, action. There was no impulse, gap, mm. action. Mm-hmm. So I was always reacting instead of then I moved from reaction to responding because I was doing it in a more balanced way. Now I've moved beyond responding to a lot of the time interacting, mm. which is you know even uh, the next level up of my understanding of that harmonic between me and, and everything else around me. Could you unpack um, harmonics uh, for the for for me and and for the listener in a in a, in a bit more depth? You've you've mentioned it a couple of times, and and you your masters of, of harmonic harmonic leadership was that was that right? Mm-hmm. What does what's the what's the, the sort of core of the concept of of harmonics in the way you describe it, and and how does that translate into a uh, into into a leadership context? Gotcha. This is an awesome question. So um, survival of the fittest is a term in which often gets thrown around and attributed um, back to Charles Darwin from Origin of the Species. But uh, he didn't actually say it. It was Herbert Spender. He said it and after reviewing a lot of Charles Darwin's work uh, a number of decades later. He coined the term. So what I've found in my, in my travels, and I've just done a lot of reading into Isaac Newton, who's like a fascinating character to me. Mm. Um, but... You know, we remember um, Newton's, you know, like the fact that he developed calculus and uh, Principia Mathematica and, uh, and that stuff. We don't realise that he wrote um, something like one million words in outside in the spiritual context that were only sold actually in 1937, all these old manuscripts and treaties and stuff that he wrote. Mm. Um, but and we take the, the um, what would be referred to in the ancient world as vulgar construct, vulgar knowledge, because it's not sacred. It's the opposite of sacred. It's vulgar. Mm. And we we then manipulate that to our worldview, um, saying that, and often, you know, the, the old Christian adage that 
um, because the Bible says that God gave the world for us to prosper, that means I can do what I want to the world, mm. forgetting that I'm destroying my home at the same time. That's where you get so, the, uh, that's where you get the giant mega ministries in the in the states, and it's like God wants me to have a four jets, <laughs> and just it, it's just, it's not even just the Christianity though. No, like, of course. Sugyal Rinpoche is like one of the he mm. wrote the Tibetan book book of the Living and the Dying, which like I recommend highly. Mm. But he's <laughs> he's had some interesting. Um, like histories, I mean, he even goes as far as Osho. You know, mm. it's it's the East and the West, and which goes back to that point I made about knowledge being power and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. Um, and you know, lots of people have called me a guru before, and I used to be very quick at like I'd actually react to being called a guru uh, because of of that fear of being put on a pedestal, but remembering anyone who the only person who can take a person off a pedestal is the person who put them there in the first place. Mm. Um, and I, and one of my issues was I had a big, big thing myself of putting people up on pedestals and then cutting it out underneath and then feeling so disheartened and, mm. um, and distraught and resentful at that person when I did the whole, whole thing myself. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but <laughs> you're dead right. You know, these, these, these people that have, have used and 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 one of the reasons why it's suggested um isaac newton actually had a mental breakdown in the 1690s was um because he released the uh principia in around 1692 i believe and had a mental breakdown around 1694 etc one of the big issues that he was facing was this incredible knowledge is being given to lay people who might not necessarily have the principles and the values and the intellectual and emotional construct and spiritual construct in his terms, because he's quite spiritual, uh, quite um, quite religious, but the, and they could therefore use it for harm. Um, you know, Oppenheimer and looking at the first atomic bomb and you know asking a question uh, about have we done the right thing? It, mm. These people of great intellect that have have used that intellect for the utilization of great power have often ask the question, have I done the right thing? Mm-hmm. So um, to, to wind that back to harmonics, I um, the, the program was originally called the, the Masters in Conscious Leadership mm-hmm. and um, because of, you know, becoming aware and being com- becoming conscious and cognitive science and, and everything like that. But I very soon realised because of the work that I do with take, you know, a lot of the time I take people into nature, I, I started to watch... Um, go back to what I said about survival of the fittest uh, and understand biodiversity in nature. And, you know, on the Australian East Coast, we've got about 80% gum tree. When the white settlers first came back in the um, 1788, there was 20% gum because mm. gum trees are a pioneer tree. When you clear the land, pioneer trees will be one of the first to come in and they'll shoot straight up to establish a canopy, which then establishes multi-level ecosystems, etc. But we've got some incredible gums that, will turn off a limb and then let that limb drop. Mm. And they know exactly what's happening and what they're doing. And and then you go to the kangaroo, which is on our coat of arms. The, the female grey kangaroo can slow down germination of, of an embryo within her womb if the season's hard. Mm. Um, mm. You know, metaphysically, the, they represent endurance. Um, and so understanding that nature simply has this innate understanding that of the path and so many things can fall in the path but like water it will 
always find a way to move through to that place. And it will draw on many things that until you sit and watch, you never realise it's drawing on. Like Isaac Newton, one of his first times in London, saw a, a rotting carcass of a dog and all these maggots eating away the, the dog. Mm. So the dog has dead flesh, but there's life in the dead flesh. And that's there's a whole series of other things. Um, and so when I see, because, you know, I ask the person, what's the opposite of death? And they will generally say? Life. Life. Yeah. No, it's not. Mm. The opposite of death is birth. And they're the cycle of life. Mm. But it's that that belief that we must must fear death. You look at what's going on at the moment, the pandemic out there is a pandemic of fear, realistically fear of death. And, you know, having faced death numerous times from, from different positions, um, I got called to really look at deep inside myself. And, you know, m- my journey started on needing to heal myself because of the effect I was having on others, to then owning the journey of healing, to want to heal myself for me, to then wanting to heal other people, to then being in a place now realising that I don't heal anyone. I hold a space for a frequency to be placed where that person may or may not choose to what's called entrain. So entrain is when two out-of-frequency um uh, vibrations actually all of a sudden switch there and come into what's called resonance mm. and they come into a harmonic. Now they don't have to be the same frequency and amplitude frequency being, you know, the, the curve over the time amplitude being the distance from the center point amplitude is the power of the wave though. And if we take a same frequency, same amplitude wave and, and add it to it, what's going to happen is we get a doubling of the amplitude, same frequency doubling of the amplitude, which is why you take, um, you know, two or three like-minded people, they get together and things go through the roof. Mm. Like brainstorming just goes wild. Creativity flows because we've got this exponential increase in the amplitude because of these like-minded people harmonizing or, or, or in training to resonance and then harmonizing together to create something. Mm. So I very, very quickly understood this. There has to be three processes, three stages to this. The first one is, Go back to the point about the scientists saying, um, if I give you this knowledge, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to destroy the world or are you actually going to, to, to do good to the world? And that can only come if I purify myself. Mm. So if I purify myself and I realize who I am and have some form of divine construct, be that a religious architecture, a spiritual architecture or something else, which allows me to understand who I really am in a broader context outside simply self. Mm-hmm. So service, service to the whole. Then if I, and I've purified myself to that, to make sure my, my, my heart is connected to my mind. So uh, the Christos of the heart to the Buddha mind, the, the two unite and I operate from that space. Then, and only then will I attract the team and I will, I will, unify the team because the team will come in its purest form but as the leader what i need to do is then create the void and the void is means that i stand on this rock and i vibrate this rock of energy for this vision which has a void between the team and me and i cannot build the bridge back to them because if i build the bridge back to them they won't move nothing moves nothing changes but i must be of this pure sense where they have this impetus to actually build the bridge themselves. So they teach themselves how to build the bridge. 
And then all of a sudden they cross the bridge and onto the actual rock. And we've had massive harmonic shift and change. And if I do that with the right people, with the, again, who are continually purifying themselves, I can then amplify my impact, which is the third stage. And when I amplify my impact into the world, I can do everything I possibly can to ensure it's coming from a heart-centered place, unified with mind to, a, to, to have this harmonic impact in the world, which will have lasting and beneficial shifts for, for people and communities. That in essence is harmonic leadership. It, it reminds me. It reminds me quite a lot, and the the similarities here to um, to Otto Sharma's work, to um, the kind of theory you have. You are you familiar with theory you? No. Um, so it, the the essence of theory you is is kind of leading from the emerging future. So you know, typically what we do is we take the experiences of the past and the lessons learned, and we and we kind of create strategies based on that, and that's the that's the path we take. Um, Otto Sharma's work around theory you is is uh, there's a there's a great quote from a guy called Bill O'Brien. Um, the success of an intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. So it starts with the, um, you know, as you say, um, in, in your context, the what is the spiritual practice? What is the connection to the larger whole? What is the connection to something beyond, uh, beyond self, beyond the eye? Um, and then it's a presencing and a sensing into what wants to emerge through me, um, what wants to emerge through us. Um, and, this this collective presencing and this collective sense making, um, I can see some some parallels there between the, the 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 idea of harmonics. What vibration are we creating in the room? What state are we putting ourselves in to create to create a vibration to create a frequency? Um, and then what is going to emerge from that as a as a collective that we're going to then sort of sense make out into the world. Um, so just, uh, it's been top of mind recently. I've, I've been kind of re, re, redigging into, uh, redigging into theory you and just a lot of what you shared kind of re resonated on, on, on similar, similar frequencies, I guess. Um, the other thing with, uh, with that, that sounds awesome. The, remember, um, the, uh, Hare Krishnas, mm. they, they say when you prepare food, you prepare yourself first. You never touch the food if your internal self is dirty that's the first washing you do is mm. not of your hands mm. it's of yourself mm. which is why lots of people will say when they eat um food prepared by a Hare krishna they have this underlying sense of joy and and beauty coming in that experience um, and if you're a, like if you're a barely aware person you'll start to understand that the vibration that you're ingesting is actually um is assisting in that hey, but we don't need to go down that line Everyone knows a beautiful home-cooked meal by mum or grandmum has something to it. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And, but we, we dismiss that, not yeah. realising that actually now, quantifiably under science, we're able to realise what is actually being done. And if we, if we get out of our, our narrow rabbit holes and actually expand, we can, we can see so much of this stuff happening. I mean, I ended up being a what's called a combat team commander in a in the military. So mm. I, I took over 110 soldiers to Iraq, and I look back at my time, like my 17 years as an army officer, and I go, "Gee whiz, you know, you were so unconsciously competent in so." Well, I understand it. Yeah, yeah, unconsciously, yeah, unconsciously competent in so many aspects. You just didn't realize what you were doing. 
But at the same time, because I didn't actually realize what I was doing, it wasn't actually necessarily uh, aware of when to use that aspect, when to turn this sort of uh, touch of myself up or turn down that aspect of myself. So sometimes it was more hit and miss. Mm. And, you know, a couple of times I really crashed. But I was always, because in my essence, I was good at what I did, I was always able to do something in that situation. Mm. Like um, when we were in Iraq, like I turned to them and we found out why we were there. And it it happened, there's a whole myriad of different things that occurred. But in essence, um, as a command team, we realized that we'd been sent, been told that we were um, there for a specific reason. And that was, it wasn't actually the reason we're there because every time we tried to do what they told us to do, we got told we couldn't. So we're starting to scratch our heads and then rockets and bombs started to fly away. And then you start asking questions. Yeah. Mm. So we sat down and we did what's called a mission analysis. We broke everything down and we realized, hold on, realistically, we're here to wave a flag. And politically, no wonder they're curtailing a lot of our operations that we're attempting to do when they're actually asking us to do them because they're of high risk. Um, and if you're there to wave a flag, your main mission becomes force protection. has to because... Um, and I'm talking very clinically now, um, it has to because uh, they cannot sustain a death toll and the, the political credibility of the actual mission um, would be undermined if we all of a sudden start coming back with casualties. So you, this is the way I used to think. Um, very, very clinical, you know, straight down the line, et cetera. Mm. But all of a sudden I realised that, you know, I've got three bloody months left in this tool. We're not going anywhere. And I've got a shed tin of resources that we've never had before. And so I got all my men in, 110 and brought them into a room. And I said, right, why do you reckon we're here? And in a nanosecond, you know, the guy who gives me the most trouble most of the time for, you know, when we're back in barracks and stuff, but he's the guy you want in a firefight right next mm. to you because mm. he's just one of those guys. He goes, it's a wave of flag, boss. What do you reckon? And I looked him straight in the eye and I said, brother, there's one bloke in this room that's had his head in the sand and he's doing the speaking right now. And I said, I apologize. Mm. But I put, the, I put the case to them. I said, we're not going anywhere. So I'm going to give you what I refer to as the grandfather test. And that is you're sitting down 30 years time on Anzac Day with a beer in your hand and your grandson on your chest, sorry, on your knee, and you're wearing your medals. And mm. he points to your Iraq campaign medal. Are you? And he asks, granddad, what did you get that one for? What does that mean? Are you ashamed or are you proud of what you say? Mm. And so we refocused in... in in a situation we found ourselves, because of choice, we realized more consciously where we were at and we reframed the why and therefore our corresponding actions. And by the end of that tour, 95% of people passed the grandfather test, hmm. including myself. Hmm. Um, so, you know, any situation when we think of harmonics, it, it, we can speak airy-fairy about it, but it's got an exceptionally, in my mind, it's got an exceptionally practical application and as as a leader all i need to do by purifying myself and coming to that point where you're saying for that internal um that internal place um and the internal flow that comes from that then watch what happens around me and the unity that actually occurs because of that and when you speak truth not Mm -hmm. my truth but when we speak truth there's a magnetism to it and that's what draws people to do unparalleled stuff. Like I've had soldiers look me in the eye and say, it's all right, boss, I've got this. And I'm asking them to do some serious, deep stuff, like dangerous stuff. 
And because I was speaking and I had this this reputation as speaking truth, they would do it. Mm. But in the, in the last 10 years since I've been out of the military, I've, I've looked people in the eye and I said, I'll never ask you to do something I haven't done myself. But there's a demon in the room right now and it's inside you. If you want my help, I can help you. And we can tame this this demon and i don't go into the slaughtering of demons it's more like horse whispering mm. when one horse whispers to a to a demon all of a sudden one befriends it and becomes the dragon rider not the lamb to the slaughter and and i say but i know for me that was a hell of a journey through so there's courage that you've got inside right now to actually do this i'll be there with you i cannot do it for you do you want to go and because of the vibration that I put out, more often than not, people will say, I want to go. And that is so humbling, so mm. humbling, man. Mm. And I feel so deeply honoured that I have the ability because of my own journey and my own trials and tribulations that I've chosen to, to, to meet head on and to heal, that I have the ability to help people do that. I'm deeply humbled and honoured by that. But it's, it, it must be. I, you know, you asked a question um, in the email. What's my why? Mm. It's like initially, this this talent became addictive, like like heroin. Man, I got a massive mm. dopamine hit the first time I looked at a woman who had an eye, like the lights go on the back of her eyes. It was like whoa, and it rippled across two hundred people in a big auditorium, mm. and I was like addicted. And I had to move through that addiction to the place where I am now, which is so much more balanced because not everyone will take that journey and that is completely okay because that, that everyone has a path in life. But my path in life has been to realise, you know, I'm, I'm in the, two point, the top 2.7% of people in, in shifting and changing mm. and I will only ever speak to that 2.7% or the 13% coming behind. Generally the, major, the majority, that, that'll click on later and that's fine by me now. I used to want to speak to the world. But then I realized I don't need to speak to the world. I just need to speak to nodes of influence and nodes of change, harmonic mm. change, mm. and the rest will take care of itself. I, I want to get into and, 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 and ask about your experience and your, your shift from, uh, you know, from the military and, and that way of thinking. You, know, you, you shared a bit of it before in that kind of quite clinical linear way to, 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 <laughs> to where you are now. Um, but be before that, I'm, I'm curious. So, the the concept of harmonics and the, the some of the examples you shared from nature, you know, the the, the gum tree that knows to to shed a limb, and and some came to mind as well. You know, the, the the flock of birds you see turning in perfect synchronicity in the in the sky is a is is a is a minor miracle that we kind of ignore every day when we see it, but. Wow. Um, and, you know, mycelial networks in the in the forest floor communicating and so many myriad examples of, of this, um, uh, this, this kind of uh, seamless resonance that, 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 that is that is effortless out there in the world. Um, what's coming up for me is how does a how does an individual how does and maybe even that framing of, of how does an individual but um stepping into this this kind of way of being this way of leading this way of driving change how do i distinguish between still getting the self in the way and 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 thinking that's that's resonance um and and you know 
I, I guess, false resonance versus when I'm actually in resonance. Um, and and is there a danger there between you know individuals kind of thinking they are and and acting from a from a place of I guess partial resonance or still just just fooling themselves with with thoughts and structures and and operating from a um, you know from a construct still I, I'm curious how you how you think about that and how you how how that plays into your work. It's an awesome question again, man. Um... The, the stages of initiation of the Magi or the Magus, the magician, um, go from, you know, the initiate through to the novice, through to the adept, to the Magus. Now, the biggest transition that occurs is realistically um, from the adept to the Magus. And the, the Magi knows that there's no difference between them and the world around them, mm. whereas the adept is still operating from a place of separateness, mm. which is why the Magi can be that esoterically or be that um, physically, materially, uh, they, they come to this place where uh, they don't need to change the world. The adept to a certain point is still wanting to change the world. Mm. Whereas when I come to a place within myself that I don't need to change anything, uh, it's, it's that, that actually becomes a really, really powerful place. Now, I mean, you go to Gandhi and you, you look into his um, the whole non-violent uh, uh, methodology, etc. When, when everyone came to Gandhi, you know, when the salt tax was happening in in India and the British Empire was really um, was really oppressive uh, in its in its um, authority and governance. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's happening right now, but um, <laughs> sorry, uh, people. People will make a distinction between history and the present moment. History only exists because of the present moment. Mm. And unless we own what's really going on in the world, we'll never be able to shift harmonically. But that aside, um, Gandhi is asked, what do I do? What, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? He says, I don't know. I'll meditate on it. He meditates. They come back. Seven days, they keep coming back. And he says, I don't know. I'll meditate. And then on the seventh day, he goes down to the beach and picks up a handful of salt. And all of a sudden, 60,000 people are arrested, being arrested and the whole collapse of the British Empire occurs back to the Suez Canal and then the Suez Crisis in 56 and we get the British Empire collapsing upon itself back to the Isles. So what happened? Um, he followed his internal guidance and, and made a move of sovereignty. And it's a real interesting point. I mean, um, Resilient Leaders Foundation is the organisation that we're currently, it's a, it's a charity, national charity in Australia um, that we run. And uh, it's changing its name to Synarchy Foundation. And that reflects the work that we do because um, Synarchy, basically the, the etymology, I, I don't like dictionaries anymore. I like um, the etymology of words, the genesis of the word, because I think you go back to the genesis, the meaning we understand a lot more. So it comes from syn, uh, S-Y-N, and then archi, and they're both Greek, and syn means together or united, and archi means rule. In other words, it's talking about a joint rule of sovereignty, a joint rule of sovereign people. So as an individual, I sovereignly understand who I am and I am harmonically engaged in my community and surrounds. And so, you know, whenever I speak, I, I speak of, you know, the, the personal responsibility that, that is required to operate. And there's, there's two rules of three that I use. Um, 
when people say, well, how should I act? Remember the, the, the two rules of three. Act with respect, reverence and responsibility and act for the three wins, a win for them, a win for me and a win for the divine. Mm. And if it passes that creed, which so many organisations have based themselves on, I mean, you look at Rotary's um, creed, initial creed, it, it follows something very similar. First Nation people, again, you know, they talk seven, seven generations into the future is why I'm here. You know, and mm-hmm. and so that it beds that down into their purpose and their why so so deeply as to you know I must act in harmony for everything, um, you know the turtle is a it's a great example you know the, coming up we'll get the flowering of the yellow wattle, and the yellow wattle was to signal to our indigenous inland that you can come to and get right of passage through the the coastal tribes to the to the ocean to where the turtle will be laying its its nest now a turtle lays around 180 eggs but you're only allowed two eggs. Why? Because if you take all the eggs in the nest, the reason why the turtle leaves 180 eggs is because they're cannon fodder when they come out of the nest and they need that amount of procreation to allow their species to, to continue. Mm. But the, the, the ancients knew that. So it would only take two from the nest and we're really respectful for it you know inland i live on the byron bay hinterland so i'm looking out about 20 kilometers that way i'm looking at byron bay lighthouse mm. but i'm on the the hills the, the the foothills of the um the nightcap range and the light and Coonium range and there are caves behind me that i've been into where i'm finding pippy shells and other like artifacts that they bring from the coast to there now this land was not clear before we came, we cleared the whole Tweed Valley. There's only a small patch of the Tweed Valley that was untouched. That's the Lost Forest. But um, they, this was all rainforest. And so they'd move from the coast at time back to there and, and have pippies to eat. Um, and the shells are, are back up in there. So everything was done knowing that I'm not separate. And this is First Nation people find this. I've been to, I tend to stay away from suicide prevention. Uh, conferences, because mm-hmm. uh, I personally believe that most suicide prevention is actually suicide intervention or postvention. Mm-hmm. That said, our charter within our foundation um, stipulates that we are for harm prevention and suicide prevention. That's only because the lawyer wouldn't write what I actually said I wanted in the constitution. But um, so I wrote a capstone document on top of our constitution, which actually puts it in the positive frame, which is we are here for people to live a harmonic life in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the point I'm making is that there was this um, 2016, there was the World Indigenous Suicide Prevention Conference over in Rotorua uh, in Aotearoa. And I said, I'm going because First Nation people have a bit of knowledge that I'm really intrigued by. It's a fabulous three-day conference. But one of the things that they kept saying was, how do I live my dreaming? How, how do I live it in the present moment? And it's a fascinating story because if you think about it, everyone has been conquered. Every every tribe has been conquered on the planet. So um, well, there are a few that haven't, I must admit, and I've seen them in Kalamantan. But um, the the most people have, which means they've lost their connection. Now, if you sever for an Indigenous person, if you take their first tongue and you take their land, the land of birth, their tribal birth for their blood, you sever their connection mm. and they become aimless, which is what we often see in big cities where where these poor First Nation people, poor, I can't say that because of the way the law of attraction works but and the way, you know, everything has a reason for it. But these people end up there and they're lost, they're hollow. Whereas 
if you take them back and they go through their own ceremony and they go through their own ownership and everything, they come back to their first tongue and back to their, to their first land, things just naturally come back in a harmonic, harmonic way. Why? Because the Mungungul Spur, which I currently live on, is a sentient being in their eyes. It's not rock. All rock has consciousness. Now, funnily enough, as you'd be fully aware, um, lots of studies have been done into the realm of consciousness and there's a lot um, coming back to this ancient, they're asking the old questions of the, the First Nation people and the ancients because they seem to have this deep inherent wisdom of understanding the architecture of the universe in a way that we believe that we do, but we don't understand it. Mm. And it's a paradigm problem, not a knowledge problem. It's a paradigm problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that the, the discussions that are happening are like fascinating as to, um, you know, understanding you know, Ken Wilber. We talked about Ken Wilber before and mm. his whole integrative theory where, you know, you include and then transcend. Well, mm-hmm. if I'm to transcend, it means if, if you go deeper into that and go right to the nth degree of transcendence, I then become not only the ladder, not only the climber, but the latter and the view, mm. but I can't become that trinity unless I go up the rung in that way mm. to get to this point of realization. So mm. all of a sudden we become connected to that around us and we realize that, you know, extracting certain materials and, and, and um, a great one is crystals. Everyone loves crystals. Talk to the indigenous of this place, the indigenous of this place, and you'll find out that to them, crystals are the endocrine system of the earth. And they ask you not to take it. Because if you take one thing away, nature has to rebalance itself. A place up in just out of Gympie where we run the Young Warrior Program, which is a, a youth rite of passage youth leadership program. And the, the farmer up there is a biodynamic macadamia farmer. And his point, he's also got cattle on the place and, and stuff like that. And his he went up and took some bluestone rock off a, a patch of land. And then three months later, we went back and there's these gnarly weeds that have grown up, really, really narky type things. Mm. And he said, they've come because they've, the land has had to, because I took the rock away, it's had to substitute what the rock was doing in that place with another thing, but it can't, it takes millions of years to, to develop a basalt rock. So it brings what it can, which is this weed. Now, the other farmers want to spray that weed, but I can't spray that weed. What I have to do is realise what the weed is actually doing. It was calcium that it was actually um, was, was holding. So he needs to go into not spray it, but he needs to balance the calcium in the actual soil, and then the weed just disappears hmm. because nature's knows what it has to do, but it does it in its own way. If you want to work with nature, understand what nature's trying to do, and then... Um, you know, work with it to do that. My old man taught me that at cattle yards. He said, never push a bull. Always make a bull think he's going in the direction he wants to go. Mm-hmm. And then if you bring that to harmonics, if you push a team to do something, they'll often resent you. Mm. But if you grow within the team, this understanding and growth of the path that they're going, they, they have ownership of it. If you try and get a young kid to do something that he has no understanding about why he's doing it, you've got Buckley's of getting him to do it. So the old adage is you've got to help people understand why they're doing things. Well, my question is what's your purpose in life? What's your meaning in life? Why are you living life? And most people can't answer that question. So friction occurs in life. 
I, I want to come back to the something you you said about the the sort of transcend and include there, which I thought was really interesting, and the rites of passage, um, and there was you know a noting of the sort of phenomenon in kind of modernity of the the rise of the sufferfests and the you know the, the 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 people putting themselves through marathons and Ironman triathlons and uh, et cetera et cetera, and what occurred to me there is it's because because at the earlier stages of you know in in say Wilbur's developmental model we're not necessarily transcending and including we're we're sort of um, we're we're transcending and negating and and actually kind of seeing the uh, previous stage as something to be uh, repelled by and something we've moved way beyond and uh, so much of that you know the rites of passage are now wrapped in a uh, in a wrapper of modernity rather than taken for the first kind of a first principles or a or a, a kind of deeply human experience that they are that that need for connection that need for ritual that need for um uh, you know a, a a relationship with with the earth and a need for a relationship with anger the need for a relationship with suffering the need for a relationship with trial and what we do is we wrap it in especially in modernity in the West, we wrap it in a, um, in a, in a, in a, in a $10,000 time trial bike and, and, and some Lycra and just ignore the time trial bike in the, in the background. That <laughs> certainly, certainly. I see not. <laughs> I see nothing. Haven't, certainly haven't been guilty there. Um, but, but, but it's very true, but it's, but it's, and, and so, so, my intuition is that what we end up with is a is a partial experience and we end up with a uh, we end up with something that's not that, that's lived through a lived through a paradigm but not not kind of as a as a as a fundamental as a fundamental human experience and the opportunity there for us is to uh, is to is to feel into and sense into and experience um you know feel our emotions all the way through fully feel them feel them as they arise like uh, and and not metastating them with the thoughts the feelings the the the, the lenses of of kind of wherever we're sat right now um yeah just uh, just wanted to share what sort of occurred to me as you were as you were speaking there um yeah, I love it. You, you you make a really beautiful point, and it it has um, the current age has has romanticised so many things from the past. Mm. But rite of passage is one thing which has been romanticised. Mm. Many young men and women, because young women also did it, and many of them didn't return. Mm. Now, one of the key aspects of any rite of passage is the first element being um, isolation or withdrawal from. The, uh, the tribe, the society, or whatever. Um, and in a lot of uh, Aboriginal contexts from Australia, the mother was the person who actually said, now is the rite of passage. They were the person that initiated the rite of passage, not the father, mm. the mother. Mm. Mm. Now, what would often happen was the men of the tribe would then rush in at night and apprehend this youngster from their humpy. And get him kicking and screaming and dragging away. Now the woman, the mother, would scream blue murder and like go through this huge mourning phase of losing her son, mm. which she had, but mm. symbolically. And that whole process would allow for this ritualistic grieving process and letting go of her son. Mm-hmm. Because what we do now, and I'm helping a lot of young people, uh, when I say young people, I'm, I'm not talking 
like um, teenagers, I'm I'm talking like anywhere up to 50 years of age, mm. um, realize that their their relationship with their parents as a son or a daughter is as a girl or a boy, mm-hmm. not mm. the relationship as a son as a man or as a woman. Mm. And, and you will not receive generally, and this is generalization because there are some amazing people out there that do allow this to occur, but you will generally not in society have your mother or your father give you the permission to transform between the girl to the woman or the boy to the man. That mm, generally won't true. happen. Matter yeah, of fact, yeah. most women, I, when I work with, like, I won't let a young person on the young warrior unless the parents come to a parent's workshop for an entire day on the last day. Mm. Because I, well, firstly, as a practical sense, um, when you empower a young person, you've got to be very careful of the environment you send them back to. Mm. And I realized um, after I did one uh, about five, six years ago, this young man went back and, and stood in his sovereignty in front of his father and he had the crap beaten out of him. Mm. And I said to myself, I will not allow this to happen. I, and I realized I, I have no power there. But what I do have is how can I set a standard of program which allows for the architecture for a supportive network to be there as much as possibly can? Mm. Now, I realize I can't control that, but I can do everything in my power to do it. So if you want a, your, your child on the Young Warrior, you come into a parent's workshop and I'll sit there and, and now that I don't pull punches, I just speak straight and I speak to fathers. Mm. And and I tell them, if you don't, uh, I'm going to use some technical terms here. So if you need to delete them, go ahead. But um, if you don't own your fucking shit, you are fucking hammering your son. And don't give it to me that your son is doing this to you or he's hiding on an iPad. He's hiding on his iPad because he's scared shitless of you. So mm. own your fucking shit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd, it's it's a big call. Yeah. And, and, like, some fathers, I don't do that to all fathers, but, like, you know, some fathers <laughs> don't respond to that. But at the same time, they don't need that either. Um, but the thing is, you know, lots of people, they, they think bullying is the way to being a parent. Well, most parenting is actually done through projection as opposed to parenting. Mm. So... This, this whole thing about um, rite of passage coming to back to that, you know, in the old days, it, the rite of passage was complete isolation in the bush. So in our rite of passage program, the young people spend 36 hours on their own in the bush. Mm. No one touches them, unless me and Kirsty, Kirsty and I should say, we'll touch them once after 24 hours where we'll go in and we'll help them learn a lesson or two and then they're gone again. And it's magical experience. And the whole point is, at the end of it, they need to have an understanding of their own lexicon of spirituality. And this is a conversation I've mm. started having with my 14 and my 12-year-old daughters. My, your mother's and my spiritual language is ours. Mm. And I'll gift every bit of knowledge I possibly have to you. I can't gift wisdom because mm. wisdom is knowledge transformed into wisdom by learned or ex- learned experience, experiential understanding. So you're the people who have to go out there and say, what is the world really to me and where do I fit into it? And I will not, I will not stand in the way of you falling over and grabbing gravel, gravel rush on your cheek because I know that you are amazingly powerful. I've gone on to the next stage of the conversation, which is you've got life. If I die tomorrow, and I, this is how I say it to them, if I die tomorrow, I know you're fine. I know you've got life. And I'll give you the big tip. The first time I had that conversation, both of us were in tears. Like, sure. Both of us were crying. But in my heart of hearts, I know both the daughters of, of, my, of my clan have, have this incredible ability about life and they're teaching me constantly. Mm. So 
you know, we romanticise rites of passage, but most of them are done. They're done in a, a, be- a beautiful way, getting to a certain point. But there's this darkness. Another one that's been romanticised is the goddess. This goddess divine, Heros Gamos, the divine masculine and divine feminine. And what we, Kirsty and I, work quite readily at is um, helping people own the black witch. And the goddess is not someone to be stuffed with. Like, it's got a very dark side to it, which is Destructor, it's Heller, it's uh, Lilith, it's, um, you know, whatever mythology you want. Uh, it's, it's there. And she is amazing. There's an incredible dark feminine energy out there at the moment, which everyone's raving about the masculine. But there's an incredible dark feminine energy out there, which until owned can't be included and transcended. Mm, mm. I feel like, James, we could do, well, I feel like we could do more than a round two um, (laughs) because we've uh, we've barely scratched the surface. Um, I'd be remiss if we didn't circle back around, though, to your to your a part of your journey anyway and and your 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 movement between, um, you know, between the military and and your your kind of previous paradigm of thought and where you are now. So I'd, I'd love for you to kind of unpack that a little bit i think i think it we, we talked about it previously off air and and for me um you know i think it illustrates not only your personal journey but um it really it really models and provides a uh, a context for anyone who might be listening to this now um and thinking wow and 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 you know being kind of enthralled and, and and moved and and feel a pull towards this work but um I, I can also i can also you know step into the shoes of of or a, a, a previous self of of kind of hearing this and thinking okay i feel like a million you know a million miles away from this and james seems like a seems like a guru <laughs> sorry i know I'm, I'm half teasing when i say that to you um but uh, you know how, how am i going to get from there to here so um Maybe if you could wrap um, wrap the story in or, or end with some recommendations for, okay, I, I've heard this, I'm 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 compelled to move forward, but wh- where do I where do I start? What's the you know what's the what's the on ramp for me to this to, to this journey? Um, and that that might be a broad that might be quite a broad question. And obviously, it will depend on the individual, but. Um, if uh, if you could take a stab, that would be that would be appreciated, <laughs> brother. I'll do my best. Okay. So um, you know, I was uh, I was a major in the military, so major in the army. Um, and I just completed um, command tenure as a combat tank commander. I had the honour of leading Australian soldiers in war. I got hit by a roadside bomb. My my specific vehicle got hit by a roadside bomb on the twenty third of April two thousand and seven, which. Uh, um, depending on, you know, I told you the story of, of flying, but uh, depending on which way you want to go, it was a sliding door moment between um, having this physical reality continue or to pass on to another realm. And um, obviously I chose because otherwise I wouldn't be sitting here in front of you. Um, so I didn't, I didn't die, in other words. Uh, but it was, there was so much to, uh, to that incident uh, Post coming home from Iraq, I developed post-traumatic stress. So, and I did that at a subconscious level. I chose to develop post-traumatic stress, not at a conscious level, at a subconscious level. And I did that to attempt to balance and mitigate the wounds in which were inside me that I 
wasn't in a conscious state to firstly realize or to deal with at the time. I just couldn't. Uh, and the, the wounds predominantly were around guilt and shame. Mm. So I come back from Iraq. They asked me to do, and they select me for Australian Commander Staff College. So promotion course for Lieutenant Colonel, 12 month university course down in, in, um, in Canberra. And so I go there and uh, I don't, I don't do well. I, do exceedingly well and become extremely bored with the curriculum. And I find a series of mentors that send me down many different rabbit warrants. And uh, I assisted um, writing counterinsurgency um, doctrine for the Australian Army, the first first doctrine and, and many other different things. So they just sent me on this because of this that thirst that I mentioned, thirst for knowledge. Mm. But all the while they thought I was excelling. Um, I came out of that and uh, they set me up for promotion. I would have been promoted in two years, which was my time tenure. Um, I'd then be sent to Iraq to, and this is the brief that I got when I got out of staff college and, and took my next job. The, my boss at the time sat me down and said, right, James, well done. You did exceedingly well. You'll take my job in two, uh, two years or one year, one of them too. Um, and then we'll send you to, to Afghanistan to be blooded on a headquarters for 12 months. Um, and then you'll come back, you'll pick up 2nd Cavalry Regiment or you're one of the regiments and uh, you'll take them in back into Afghanistan and then come back to a high-profile posting in the military uh, for 12 months, which read mobile phone on your hip um, at work before seven. Um, don't know when you'll be home for 12 months um, in the middle of Canberra. And then you'll be promoted full colonel. Well done. And I looked at him in the eye and I said, sir, in 12 months' time I'm getting out of the military. And he just looked at me and couldn't accept the answer. Matter of fact, he turned against me for the next 12 months. Mm. Um, and he was a very adversarial boss. And I, the military, I didn't tell the military what was going on personally inside, mm. but I'd cracked and I'd found the level that my shoulders could sustain. And I'd gone way beyond that to the point of when I get home, my home was not a nice place to be in if I was there. My family loved it when I left the room. I loved it when I walked out the door, donned the uniform and went and did that because I'd come home and I'd trip over a scooter, Abby's scooter, and I'd go ballistic. Mm. Who told Abby to put the scooter there in the first place? I couldn't bath my two-year-old daughter without splintering. Kirsty asked me one day why I was angry. I put my fist through the cupboard door telling her in a very, very yelling manner that I'm not angry. My two-year-old daughter's looking up at me with eyes like dinner plates. Mm. My other daughter is in, in Kirsty's tummy. Mm. So everything was falling apart to the point where Kirsty had to put everything on the line. She came into me one night when I couldn't bath Abby and, and she said, if you don't get help, I'm going. By this stage, I had two daughters. And it was like, holy cow, you know, I, I'm, I'm in this place where I can't deny. And I know I'd... That conversation had happened after I'd realised within myself that I couldn't be a father. I wasn't being a husband and I certainly wasn't being a man. I could take bullets, I could take bombs. I couldn't do these basic functions. And I'd realised that. And then Kirsty had this conversation with me. So it was right. I looked at her and I said, gorgeous, I know I've got a shift. I know something's not right. I don't know what it is. I'm a fix-it type bloke crying out loud. I just can't seem to fix myself. Now, that whole paradigm needed to shift for me to recover. Because I thought something was broken. Something wasn't broken. No one's ever broken. Matter of fact, one of the reasons why mental illness or adverse mental conditions has so much stigma is because we'll use two lines directly after each other. The first is you don't understand it's not their fault. 
they are, that's the first line. It's trying to bring sympathy to them. The second one is they're just broken inside. Mm. Now, if you had said that to me, or you even had to come and said, are you okay to me? When I was in my dark days, you would have had one or two responses. Yeah, mate, great. How are you? Or you would have walked away with a broken nose. Mm. And I could not give you anything in between those two poles mm. because of where emotionally I was inside. Mm-hmm. So I needed to come to a place to hit rock bottom. I thought I hit rock bottom. And then I put my hand up. And all of a sudden, I found someone that really resonated with me, someone that seemed to speak my language, that he talked about emotions, but he talked about everything that I was doing as I'd been in my lounge room for the last 12 months. And I'm just, how the hell do you understand me so well? Mm. But he was an affable guy. He was a knockabout guy. He swore. He, um, and he was a father figure to me. Mm. And I'd lost my father a few years before. So I got involved with his organization. Both of us got involved in his organization. Kirsty and I um, jumped on board and did his, his program. And, you know, through 12 months of that, um, I really developed a deeper understanding of myself. The, the big ticket things, though, that had to happen was firstly ownership and then emotional literacy coming in to work out these things called emotions and realize that I could be open. I don't ask people to be vulnerable because if, as soon as a person hears vulnerability, subconsciously there's the defenses kick in. Mm. It's just a natural reaction. I'll ask people to be open with me. Just be open with me, dude. That's all I want. I'll be open with you. You'll be open with me. It's all good. And I real I realized that that's, I actually have a talent of being courageous in that respect. I don't mind just sharing who I am. Um, I used to, but that wasn't me. That was me trying to protect myself. I don't need to protect myself anymore because I realized who does the wounding. So, you know, the, I went through that phase of, of getting dirty and understanding emotions. Now, what that did is it triggered me to dissent even further because all of a sudden my self-awareness increased to work out what the hell I'd been doing and the effect I'd been having on people and at times narcissistic behaviour, which you know appalled me, all of a sudden I really went by and that's when I went suicidal was after I put my hand up. Now... Gus Wallen, I don't know if you're aware of the Sydney radio um, guy. He, he started a program called um, on the ABC called Man Up and uh, it was a four-part series. I don't know if they've gone on any further, but they had a, a psychological support team from Griffith University and I, I heard the, the lead speak um, with Gus the other day at a conference that I was at and we, um, she said, the lady said that 64% of men taking their own life have already asked for help. Mm. And that was a, it's a bit, now there's a, re, a lot behind that statistic you're unpacking. I'm always very aware of statistics, but sure. in my, in my experience, the last 10 years of helping people, when they come to me, generally we're going to go down and that's natural. And, and it's because of this unraveling and I don't know what I don't know um, that Donald Rumsfeld, um, Jedi mind trick, but he, you know, press interview where he talked about the known knowns and the known unknowns. Mm-hmm. It's actually, there's a lot of truth to what he just said, mm-hmm. um, but he was using the Jedi mind trick. The, <laughs> but the thing is that's that when these people come, they don't actually know. And so my, one of my questions, and I just asked a young guy who got out of jail not too long ago, um, if, you want, if you want my help, what are you not willing to let go of in the process of getting yourself to where you want to go? Because mm. I've, I've got to work out if I can actually help him. Because if he's not willing to change, then cool. Someone else will be there for you, champ. I can't help. Um, and so he, he's been sent away to unpack that question and come up with a detailed answer for himself. 
Uh, and then I can actually understand whether or not I can help him or not. Otherwise, I'm, I'm doing him a disservice. I'm saying that I can provide something that I can't provide. Mm. So the I needed to go through this downward thing and then all of a sudden personal responsibility really kicked in and I realised I'm the only person who can get me out of this and I actually want to get myself out of it. I started wanting to heal for everyone else because of my family, my two daughters. Initially, my two daughters, not my wife. Mm. They had too much guilt and shame about what I'd done to Kirsty. So it was my daughters that came to my heart space and my dog, not my wife. Now I had to get over a bit of guilt and shame about that too on the journey, but I did. Um, but then I was a bit apt at getting over guilt and shame. Um, and I went through this, this journey into myself. So the emotions had to clear. And then I started, I started to connect back into who I was. And I say who I was because my understanding of that connections morphed. Um, and I started to have this deeper connection with myself and then starting to be a bit more intimate with myself. All of a sudden, my intimacy with Kirsty started to open up. I can't be intimate with another unless I can be intimate with myself. Mm. And that really started to, to morph. And then, then all of a sudden, my, um, I moved through that and my connection started to, to really um, deepen and clarity started to happen about who I was and the meaning that actually represents myself as a being and what I'm meant to do. And then and from that place, I was able to focus and I was able to really bring my attention and, and realize what discipline I was. And discipline in my 70s in the military was someone standing there with a higher rank than me telling me what to do. And I'd have to do it. That's imposed discipline. True discipline comes from the heart space, not the head. Uh, it comes from a place of knowing where I and what I truly want in the world. And therefore, because I truly want and love that, and want to be of service there, I'm going to naturally prioritize my efforts to achieve that or to be on that journey. Not achievement focused or outcome focused, but as, as journey and outcome focused in the whole sense of the matter. But that discipline comes from my heart space in union with my head in that order, heart space first, then head. So um, that's what I started to really develop. And then I started to develop this architecture of myself as um, you know, my spiritual understanding, I started to own that. I couldn't do a podcast like um, eight years ago, one of my first podcasts I did, I couldn't touch spirituality. Mm. I just couldn't bring myself to be open about it. Mm. Whereas now I, you know, I walk into the bush with men and very soon they're hugging trees and like blokes are going, oh, what am I hugging a tree for? And I think he's just for giggles and shits and giggles, mate. But, um, <laughs> and I used to think tree huggers were, you know, meditators are a bunch of tree hugging puss. That's what yeah. I said in the military. Sure. Um, now I meditate every day and I, I quite regularly go up with trees, mind you. I, I don't mind um, felling a dead tree and, um, and making some furniture out of it as well. So I'm good, pretty apt with a chainsaw. But the, <laughs> I, I went through this journey um, to come to where I am now that, uh, I had to realize what really resonated with me and cleanse my paradigms that every time I started to hit resistance or, or whatever, I had to realize there's no such thing as resistance, James. It's simply the way I'm looking at it. So therefore, I'm not seeing the whole issue. So elevate myself out of the emotion and look down with that elevated detachment to see and bring reason to the matter. And reason can assist me navigate that path, but never discount the emotion because I must, as you beautifully said, I must go through it, process it to its to its natural conclusion, which it does naturally, goes in a way, that's what emotions are all about. Energy and motion is a contraction mm -hmm. of the statement. Mm -hmm. um, and then allow that as a guide so that these emotions come up. Anger is a beautiful emotion. Don't look at the six o'clock news to you'd never get that. You know, it's a bad emotion for them, but 
um, anger is telling me my, my expectations of the world aren't being met or my personal boundaries are about to be violated. So something needs to shift. It doesn't mean to say it's physical, external, more often than not, it's internal. It's as above as opposed as below. I've got to look into my paradigm that I'm approaching the situation. When I shift that, all of a sudden freedom comes, freedom of choice within engagement in the situation. All adverse mental conditions stems from the wound of powerlessness. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, our Western medical system, sorry, Western medical industry, which includes the psychiatric and psychological uh, fraternities, is set up to enable victim consciousness. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I say there's nothing wrong with it because if there was something wrong with it, I'm judging it. It's a natural morphing of human consciousness through a series of evolutions to get to a point where the individual themselves births freedom. That's the no psychologist, psychiatrist spiritual facilitator, emotional facilitator, none of them healed me. The most amazing thing that I've been able to do in my own life is to heal myself with incredible support because I needed to open myself up to receive the support, not believing initially that I was worthy of it, but open myself up to realise that when I do open, I will naturally attract the right guide, guard, angel, angel, person facilitator psychologist or whatever that will assist me on my journey beautifully said um james thank you so much for sharing today you are a beautiful human being uh, and a very fun conversation and um as i said before um i'm more than happy to have a, a round uh, a round two at some point with you um any final thoughts or takeaways or asks of the uh, of the audience? And finally, where where can people uh, find you as well if they're if they're so moved to uh, to get in touch? Um, probably the easiest place is Facebook, just James Greenshields, or still at the moment it's Resilient Leaders Foundation. It's our excuse me, our Facebook page. We do have Resilient Facebook, sorry, resilientleadersfoundation.org. That's our website, mm -hmm. um, with all our stuff on there. Um, but if you, I do a lot of videos online that I just like to get out, get in front of the camera and just talk to people about issues which are I'm finding um, very socially, um, societally relevant. Um, and a lot of people are finding the way I present on the videos has helped them dramatically. So, um, you know, if you want to connect with me, James Greenshields, then then please do. I invite you to do that. The the biggest lesson that I've ever had in my own life is personal responsibility comes from an understanding of what I control. And I control three things in my life, my thoughts, my words, and my deeds. Mm. Now, I realize that on a daily basis, sometimes I'm not doing the best job I could at controlling my thoughts or my words sometimes slip out the wrong way or not necessarily in alignment with where I really want to go. All my actions can be, hmm, James, is that an integrity? Mm. But always remembering those things and that if I do work towards making them as aligned as possible to me, that brings power back to me. Mm. Which brings me to the last point, and that is there's two ways of looking at the world. The world is it's never going to be perfect. Uh, you know, whatever you did then, that's it's cool. You've got to understand. It's just it's not always going to be perfect. It's all The situation is not always going to be perfect. It's a, it's a big view and if you have that view you will get the corresponding outcome mm. cause and effect you'll get the corresponding outcome by the by virtue of of that vibration you put out but if you think about it big t truth absolute truth universal truth high vibrating or low vibrating which one high vibrating 
I'm vibrating. If I'm saying that not everything is perfect, it's not, never going to be perfect. Am I vibrating high or low? Um, I would say high. Well, uh, I mean, it, it's perfect because it is what it is. The, the, the universe is as it is and wanting it to be a different way is well a symptom of a symptom of pathology <laughs> in certain respects but you could go down a pathology route very much so sure. if you feel it most people who do it are actually low uh, they're, they're vibrating from a lower standpoint mm. if i turn around and have what you're alluding to i believe and that is life's perfect it will change mm. the situation right now is perfect as it is it wouldn't have occurred otherwise mm fact that I can't necessarily see its perfection in this moment simply is because of the, the viewpoint, my lenses that I'm looking through. Mm. But therefore, it triggers my principle of wonder and awe to go, what's the mystery in here for me? And allow myself to engage the situation even more so to, and lean into, lean into life instead of pulling back from life and resting in resignation, surrendering into life and going, hmm, okay, it's perfect. Let me see why. The, you'll get a corresponding outcome. And one, if you feel it, if I say life is perfect, then it, it is by virtue of, of just the words. You can feel them coming out of your own, uh, your own mouth. You can feel the difference in the vibration. Mm. So it's the way, the reason why I am where I am, the reason why I'm still on the planet, the reason why I'm growing every single day is because I listen to my words more than anyone else in the world. I'm the only person in every single conversation I have, every single action I take, I'm the only common denominator. And so I'll look at the three things constantly, my thoughts, my words, my deeds, and I'll also look at my outlook. Is it coming from a place of known perfection or is it coming from a place of known imperfection? I will get a corresponding result. That comes back to power in my choice, however it be. I think that's a uh, a perfect place <laughs> to uh, no pun intended to uh, <laughs> to to end. Um, James, thank you again um, for you, dear listener. I will uh, I will put links to where you can find James and everything else we talked about in the show notes. Um, and until next time, thanks, Phil. So that's it for another episode. If you enjoyed today's episode and got value from the conversation, the most direct way you can support the podcast is by sharing with a friend. You can also leave us a rating and review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can, of course, share the episode on social media. And if you're interested in having a further conversation around conscious leadership, coaching, and leadership development, you can send me an email at hello at philcross.net. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>